All right, so we're going to be uh, in the Gospel of Matthew today and forever until the end of time. So uh, Matthew 15 is where we're at. Um, I'm going to read the passage really quick. It's, it's a long stretch. I want to read all the way through because we're kind of going to jump around a little bit. So Matthew 15, we're going to cover 20 verses today, 1 through 20. Um, and we like to take big pieces of scripture here. We're just like, let's do this. Like, yes, let's, let's just go for it. Uh, which is really foreign to me because I prefer to take like four verses and spend like an hour just talking about those four verses, but I'll spare you that today. Okay. So verse 15, chapter 15, verse one, the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. And all the parents said, amen. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And the disciples came to him. Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that the heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the bind, they will both fall into a pit. But Jesus said to him, or Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. And he said, Are you still without, without understanding? Do not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Let's pray really quick. Jesus, we thank you uh, that you brought us here today. We thank you for the family of God. And we just pray this morning, Lord, that you would encourage us, remind us of your goodness, uh, remind us of your faithfulness. Uh, remind us of how loved we are by you um, and uh, how as we grow and mature, Lord, we become more and more like you and more and more um, people of love. And so I just pray for that to be our heart today and to encourage us with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So my wife, Kayla, and I got married in 2016, almost forgot, close call, uh, 2015, 2015 was the year that the Mets were in the World Series, so I know it was the year after that, so we're good. Uh, and if everybody has different families, their families are all structured kind of differently. You can have a lot of people in your family or less people in your family. I come from a family that's a little bit more like kind of closed off, like we have our immediate family, and we didn't really spend a lot of time growing up with our like extended family. So I have like eight cousins, which is, I feel like, pretty reasonable. Uh, my wife, Kayla, has an exceptionally large family. She has 34 cousins, which is a lot. And some of you are not that concerned about it, which means that maybe my family of eight was actually more abnormal than yours. That's okay. Uh, 
And anyway, uh, Kayla really had um, a really important personal belief that was that until we weren't going to be officially dating, and we were 28, so we're still talking officially dating, you know, um, until I met her whole family, her whole family. So that's just 34 cousins. That's not counting grandparents, siblings, uh, uncles and aunts. Her, once her family has eight kids, and so that's how you end up with 34 cousins is you have eight aunts and uncles, and that's just part of it. Um, and so the first time I met Kayla's family was at her sister's wedding. So I show up, and for some reason in Kayla's family, like the fact that Kayla had a boyfriend and she was bringing him to the wedding was like the event of the century. So I show up to this wedding, and there's, I'm not kidding, like a million people in this family. And I got to meet all of them. And it's like just like a revolving door. Oh, hey, you must be Carson. You must be Kayla's boy. You must be, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, all these people. And I'm just like, I'm not going to remember any of you. I still don't know all of their names. Five years later, still have no idea what a lot of, them, what a lot of their names are. Um, and I just kind of that thing where you see them and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's good to see you. And you like hope that they don't end up in a conversation with them because you don't have to be like, oh, yeah, that's great. And then try to like navigate around the fact that you don't know their name at all. Um, and anyway, families are different and every family has different traditions and the family of God is, is no different. So the family of God, we consider anybody who's brought into this calling of Jesus comes together and does similar things, but the family of God can also really easily become a cult. And like many of you, I am fascinated by cults. I've never been a part of one, but I I have done a lot of research in them. Cults are just like Christianity, but two steps removed, okay? You basically take Jesus out of the picture, and then you elevate actions and traditions. And when you do that, and you kind of muddle in some like utopian stuff, where you're like, we can make the world better if we just all agree to the same thing, and everybody gets along, and everybody agrees to the same thing, and we'll all do the great thing together. Fortunately, human beings don't operate that way, but people still want to believe that that's true. And so that's what a cult becomes, right? And it's really easy to get there. And it's really easy for Christians to become that way because there's certain cultural practices that Christians have that share kind of similarities with that. Maybe we dress the same. Maybe we act the same. Maybe we eat the same things. Maybe you have similar family structures, similar traditions. And what happens in these things is there's a core value And then we add on all this extra stuff. And what it becomes is over time, we lose that core value and we start to focus on the extra stuff. Because what tradition gives Christians is the ability, or just I would just say religious people in general, what it gives them is the ability to have control over their faith and their destiny. And as people, we love control. So tradition takes us to that level. And so what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, Jesus is, interest, is faced with a really interesting situation here in verse 15. So let's read. Uh, I'm gonna, first just going to go through and just do a quick overview of the passage. I'll point out some observations, and then we'll do some application. So here we go, verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So this is important because Jesus isn't in Jerusalem, but the Pharisees feel very, they really want to ask Jesus this question, so they leave Jerusalem and come to him. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, really quickly, if I could have that first slide up, a quick definition of tradition. Nice. Wait. Too soon. There it is. All right. 
the traditions of the Greek word paradosis, it means simply this, customs and practices from the past that are passed down as accepted standards of behavior. So the Pharisees asked this question to Jesus, how come your disciples don't follow this tradition? Um, and he answered them. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And I love what Jesus does this with the Pharisees. The Pharisees come, they ask him a, a fairly reasonable question, I would say. Like, how come your disciples don't follow this tradition? It's a Jewish tradition. You're a Jewish rabbi. How come your disciples don't do this? And he doesn't respond by saying, like, because we do and get over it. Like, all of us would probably do that today. We'd be like, as we do, just leave me alone, all right? He instead turns the argument onto the Pharisees. He flips it around. And he asks them a question. How come you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Yeah, right? He doesn't just say, why do you do all the extra stuff? He says, no, why do you break the commandments, which to the Jews would have been a big deal, for the sake of your tradition? For, he goes on, God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Uh, he talks the Ten Commandments there, honor your father and mother, so he references back to them. Then he says, but you say, if anyone tells father, his father or his mother what you have gained from me is given to God. Let's pause and let's just go back really quick. So he talks about this idea of the commandments of the elders, the traditions of the elders. Here's in a nutshell what this was. Basically what happened was, over time, these elders had created traditions with the goal of protecting Jewish law, okay, protecting the Ten Commandments. That was their goal. And so they make these traditions to, quote-unquote, build a fence around the commandments. So these traditions were not, like, intended to be evil. They weren't intended to take priority over God. They were simply intended to protect what was really sacred to the Jewish people, the Torah, And so these elders have these commandments, and they enforce them on their believers. They say, hey, we have these commandments, we have these traditions. The problem was they'd elevated them now to where what it meant to be a Jew was basically like to follow these laws of the elders. And so Jesus points out a commandment, and then he tells them that they have created this other law that cancels out that law. But you say... If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father or mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Pharisees. They're an interesting group of people. I think they get a bad rap. I think that a lot of things that they do are noble in nature. They desired to protect Jewish law. The issue was, They had made those customs, those protections, the priority. And now people were following that more. So the example he gives is basically this. We know we're supposed to honor our father and our mother. You know that. That's a tradition you're supposed to do. But the councils of the elders created this law that if a kid came to their parents and said, hey, everything I have is given to God. It's this word Corbin. All right. They say everything I have is given to God. What that would basically mean is if a parent was in need and needed money from their child, the oath was bound to give those things to God. They could not give it to their parents. They couldn't help them. The oath was binding. And so as a result, if a kid said that to their parents to kind of stick it to them and say, I don't need you anymore. I got my own stuff. When that parent was in need and when that child wanted to help them out, the Pharisees said, you can't. You made an oath. You can't help them out. You can't give them anything. So in doing so, 
he cancels out this respect for the parents, this commandment with the tradition, and it wipes it out. And then he uses this word that we all love, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And we're going to come back to verse 8 and 9 because I want to talk about it at the end. But remember in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is talking about how to pray, he says, do not be like the what? The hypocrites. He doesn't say who they are. He just says, don't be like them. And now if there was any doubt, Jesus says, you guys are the hypocrites. You're saying you're supposed to honor your father and your mother, but then you're making these traditions that cancel out that honoring. So what it's all about. And he called his people to him. So he calls this crowd to him. Now he calls the people to him. So he takes this and makes it into a teaching moment. He says, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And I, I was going to spend a little bit of time doing this. Just for the sake of time, I'll kind of gloss over it. Okay, Leviticus, the law, kind of gave the Jewish people this um, list of things that were unclean and things they shouldn't do. And one of those things is basically anything that crawls on the ground, don't eat it. Don't touch it. It's unclean. And so because of the culture where people were spent a lot of time in the dirt and the dust and their hands were all dirty, they had this rule around ceremonial hand washing. They said, listen, here's the deal. I'm getting a phone call in my pocket right now. Cancel it. Uh, They said basically that washing your hands prevented you from from ingesting any sort of uncleanliness. And they were so serious about their holiness, which isn't a bad thing, by the way. They were so serious about their holiness, their set-apartness, that they said, listen, everybody's got to wash their hands all the time. Because what might happen is you may ingest something into your mouth because your hands are dirty from something that crawls on the ground. So they said, you got to wash your hands. They were that serious about their holiness. And so he calls the people to him and he says... It's not what goes into the mouth. It's not these things that we think about that are crawling around on the ground or whatever that makes us defiled, that, that makes us evil. He says this. Then the disciples said to him, do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus is like, yes. The problem is, in our culture, people are like, offended. Yeah. I want to offend some people. I mean, let me capture this really quick. Jesus offends people for the right reasons. He doesn't seek to offend anybody. He offends people for things that are about him. They're about the truth, that are misguided conclusions to clarify. And I love that Jesus does this. He's not afraid to offend anybody. But he also doesn't seek out active ways to offend people. But he says this, he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they will fall into a pit, which is such a great picture, right? They're just blind. They literally can't see and they're guiding people. What a ridiculous picture, right? If I'm going to go somewhere or going to go on a guide for a hike, I'm not hiring a blind person to take me there. But he says, it's kind of a funny statement. It's an oxymoronic face. Their blind guides would be an oxymoron. It doesn't work. That cancels each other out. 
and they're going to lead themselves into a pit. So he says, let them alone. The blind and the blind both will fall into a pit. And then Peter said to him, explain this parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth, passes in the stomach, it is expelled? If you have kids, you know all about that. (laughs) But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Why? Because the heart is evil. Verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, sexual immorality, adultery, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile the person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So just to quickly summarize all of that. He says this, at the end of the day, traditions, they're not bad things. And the Pharisees are not bad people. It's very easy to do that with the Pharisees because that's kind of what we've been taught. The Pharisees are bad. I think what the Pharisees were trying to do was noble, but they'd elevated that status to a point where you couldn't even know what it was to be a Jewish person anymore. You were only identified by your traditions. And I wonder if sometimes that's sometimes where we've ended up. And so I asked this question to us. What does it mean to be a mature follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be someone who is, quote unquote, in their walk, mature in their faith? What's the identifying factor of that? Because it'd be really easy to say it's the traditions. You get up every morning, you open your Bible, you read and you pray for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, two hours, whatever it may be. And then you go to your job and you work hard and you do those kinds of things that we know are external experiences. The unfortunate reality of our life is this. The external things, and those are not bad things. That's the thing. Traditions, they're not not bad. But no one can actually see what motivates you. And no one can actually see what the truth is under the surface. As believers and as human beings, we're really good at hiding these things. And then simultaneously, wrapping it all together in this very public persona where we identify with certain traditions because we want to appear like everybody else. We may not agree with them at all, but at the same time, in order to look the part and fit the scene and to keep people off our backs, we just align ourselves with some traditions. But traditions were never meant to be the thing. They were never meant to be the thing, the focus. So let's look at some really quick observations. Um, I sent an uh, email to Michael last night that had my points in it. And just before I came on the stage, he was like, did you get my email? I said, no. <laughs> and he was like, you're missing some points somehow. This is weird. I'm a teacher. There's no way I messed this up. Anyway, uh, you're missing some points, Michael, it sounds like. All right. Uh, but so all that to say, this could be a little bit choppy, so (laughs) bear with me. It's okay. I don't work here. All right. Uh, number one, the Pharisees are well-intentioned, but misguided. We kind of need to have more empathy for the Pharisees. They were trying to be evil. They just got wrapped up in their own thing. They're noble. They're holy. And you know what? We need to be holy. And sometimes that means not ascribing to certain cultural things because 
We don't agree with it. That's okay to do, by the way. However, they had placed the tradition above the people. It wasn't about being caring and being loving and being merciful. It was about following tradition. All right, number two, Jesus' way of doing things is very different. Can we, all, can we all agree with that? It's very different, all right? Very different. Uh, and, I, and I brought up this passage that I want to talk about at Matthew uh, 21. If you think all the way back to decades and decades ago, long, long time ago, we were in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says this in 21, and I just want to pause and just take this in, this contrasting nature of his kingdom. He says this, You have heard it was said to those of old, You shall not murder And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell. I'm pretty sure I've said that before to somebody. So if you're offering your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come to offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and guard and to the guard you put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Let's scroll down to verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here's the picture that Jesus gives us. He says, listen, the surface stuff doesn't really, it's not that big of a deal. The bigger emphasis is what's going on in your heart. Just to give an example, to be completely transparent with you, my wife, Kayla, and I are married. If I chose to cheat on her, chose to commit adultery, there's a whole lot of reasons why I would choose not to do that. Okay? And the surface level reasons would be, well, gosh, it's going to wreck my family. We're going to get divorced. I'm going to lose half my net worth. My kids are going to be messed up. There's going to be trust issues. What will the people think about me? What will the church think about me? All those things are things everybody thinks about, but those are traditions. But really the issue is that Jesus he says, listen, it's about your heart and the focus of your heart. If you're, not, if you're choosing to commit adultery, that's an evidence of your heart. Your decision not to do that should have nothing to do with what everybody else is going to think about you. It should have to do with the fact that I have called you into a greater existence beyond that. Right? That's a high calling, but he says it's about your heart. It's not about the other stuff on the surface. It's about you. So he draws this really intense dividing line where he says, hey, listen, like your heart is the focus. So even if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery. Nobody else can see that. Nobody else will know that, but I know. And it's that holiness that Jesus divides the line. And in a way, it's kind of freeing because all of a sudden, everything on the surface kind of gets pushed out. And you just have to deal with Jesus in your own life, in your own heart. What's going on there? What's happening there? It creates this intense dividing line. It's the same thing with the Pharisees. That's what I'm trying to say when he says his way of doing things is different. We all agree that murder is wrong in any capacity. But do we also agree that anger is wrong? Do we also agree that insulting somebody is wrong? No, because culture's kind of okay with that. But Jesus isn't okay with that. He's calling you into a much farther, 
deeper, more meaningful existence. And you've got to deal with that. We've got to deal with that. I've got to deal with that in my own heart. Two weeks ago, after school, I got in this terrible exchange with a student. Just a total power struggle. And if you're a teacher, you know this power struggle is never a good thing. Just like with your kids. As soon as you get into a conversation with your kid where you're trying to like rationalize with them and trying to like reason with them and trying to explain stuff to them, they're gone. They got no idea what you're saying. All right? Stop crying, stop crying, stop crying, stop crying. It doesn't work, all right? I got this power struggle with this 12-year-old kid, which just as a 33-year-old person to be arguing with a 12-year-old kid, I mean, there's just a whole lot of dynamics there that aren't healthy, all right? And I get out of the classroom, and then I run into my coworker, and we're talking, and then I have the same argument with him. I, huh. Don't act like you've never gotten into an argument with somebody before, first of all. Okay, we've all been there, all right? <laughs> and I was like, what the heck? Like, what am I doing? Like, what is the purpose of these arguments and discussions and heated exchanges? Over what? At the end of the day, who cares? But I was just so fired up. And I read this passage I was teaching on, and I was like, okay. Because the reality was, it was coming out of my heart. There was something in my heart that was frustrated, anger. And like many people in this room, this year has been very challenging. And as a result, we've gotten really angry with people. Whether that's somebody in the grand scheme of culture, like a, like a personality or a famous person or somebody on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, or that's your coworker or your neighbor down the block. And we have to understand that Jesus is actually calling us into a much deeper existence, that that reality, what you're saying, what's coming out of you is, is actually under the surface. It's an evidence of something that's off in your heart. Because the heart's not necessarily a good place. Despite the fact that our culture says, follow your heart, you know, follow your heart. Your heart is, for the most part, at times, really deceptive. If not transformed, okay? Now, let's keep moving. We're getting caught up here a little too far. Let's keep going. Uh, Third point is this. Oh, good, perfect. Uh, Our heart is not a source of good unless it's being transformed. Perfect, that is a seamless transition into that. That was awesome. (laughs) Uh, an asterisk, nice, that's Michael, he did that. You can't do anything for salvation, but you must do something to manifest it. You must work out what God has worked in. That's from Oswald Chambers in my utmost for his highest. He says that. Let's do it one more time. You cannot do anything for salvation. We agree with that. God gives us that. It's a gift. He says, hey, I love you. Here's the truth. Here's me. Here's salvation. Here's love. But you must do something to manifest it. It's amazing how many people are saved believe in Jesus, and yet live their lives like hell is the end game. They live their lives right now in a state of hell, even though their lives are transformed by Jesus or ought to be. Whether that's addiction, whether that's perpetual anger, whether it's fear and being anxious and not surrender, whether it's control, whatever it may be, we have to work out that salvation in our heart. We have to do that. That's on us. It really is. Jesus gives us the power. We have to tap into that. You must work out what God has worked in. Next point. Jesus is a frustrating center in a polarized world. Jesus is fine irritating everybody. We only only really want to irritate one side. And it's whoever disagrees with us or who votes differently from us or 
has a different worldview from us. We just want to push them farther to that side, right? But Jesus lands right in the middle and is okay irritating the Gentiles and the Jewish people. He's like, both of you guys have got it wrong. In our hyper-polarized world with extreme left and extreme right, Jesus stands in the middle and says, you both have some things that you got going that are right. You both have some things that you're pretty far off on. I'm okay irritating both of you. If you believe that your political side of the political spectrum has 100% correct, you should be very nervous about that because Jesus doesn't agree with you. He lands right in the middle. He's what Benjamin Franklin would call an extreme moderate. Someone who militantly seeks out the middle ground. Trying to find a way to work with both sides. And yet we're comfortable more being on one side of the camp and that wraps up in, every, in the type of news that we listen to, in the TV that we watch, and who we vote for or don't vote for, who we hang out with, who we don't hang out with, all of that. Jesus says, nope, it's not supposed to be that way. The family of God accepts everybody into it. No matter how awkward they may be, no matter how much how they dress, I'm wearing Birkenstock clogs, no judgment here. I know some of you don't like it, but that's okay. I'm from Eugene, so it's fine. Uh, number five, that was a dig. I had to get stick in them a little bit, you know. Uh, the Bible is an active and living document, not a legal reference book. We don't go back to it to go, okay, what should I do? How do I do right or wrong? What's the, what am I supposed to do? I gotta find it. No, it's a living document. It's meant to constantly convict us and change us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't like Jesus put the disciples in a trance and said, here you go, trance, bam, write the scriptures. They wrote into their own cultural context as a human being with their own personality. But it's still divine. It's still God's word. Okay? It's a living document. It's meant to convict us. It's meant to change us. If I don't go to the scriptures and find conviction in what way I'm living, I might have some issues I got to work out. Number six. Gosh, I have a lot of points. What was I doing? Here we go. We need to have a right view of spiritual disciplines and practices. Spiritual disciplines are great. My wife and I started doing this thing called Sabbath. Um, I put it in quotes because we weren't really doing Sabbath. We were just like turning off our phones and sleeping in and taking a nap. But, and like eating whatever we wanted to do and do whatever we wanted. And then all of a sudden I listen to these passages where it's like, you're supposed to like seek the Lord and like worship and sing songs and pray and read your Bible. And I'm like, but I just kind of want to drink wine and hang out, you know? Uh, so the problem is like, like, Sabbath is great if it's put in the right place, right? If I elevate Sabbath, which is what the Pharisees did, they elevated it for their own needs and their own holiness. If I do that, then I kind of cheapen it. So the purpose of spiritual disciplines, like reading your Bible, uh, even praying to an extent, is not so that we can go, ah, God loves me more because I did this action. If you fall into that trap, we got to repent of that. Because not only are we putting ourselves, enslaving ourselves to religiosity, we're cheapening God's grace, we're saying, actually, your grace doesn't really mean anything because I still have to prove myself. But that's not the way that Jesus operates. He frees us in that. He says, listen, these disciplines are just to get closer to me. They're not to become the priority. And that should shape the way we do everything that we do. Another last point. Dylan, can you go to the next slide? Let's see what happens. Whew. All right. Thank God. new too many points. Moving on. All right. By the way, Dylan back there doing slides. I just want to talk about him really quick. He's here every Sunday, and he's awesome. He's a freshman in high school. He works two jobs, and he's on two sports teams. And he shows up and does slides every Sunday. And he probably, he seems like a person that would probably hate that I even mentioned that, but I just I had to mention that a little bit. So, Britton, you've kind of been, uh, 
Bump down a tier as the person we reference up here now. Now Dylan's the person I'm going to reference from now on. All right. So here's the spectrum. On the left, we have deconstruction. On the right, we have legalism. This is a church thing. Deconstructionism says, why do we need to go to church? Why can't I just go golfing with my friends and drink beer and have that be church? Got one laugh. Must not be a golfer. That's fine. Uh, legalism is the other side. It says, no, you got to go to church. If you don't go to church, God have mercy on you. You miss a Sunday and it's like, seal it. What? what's wrong? What's, what's going on with them? They haven't been here in a couple of Sundays. I wonder if they still love Jesus at all. Um, and it's important because that's, we fall into those two camps, right? It's, and it's, here's the thing. I can go to extremes easily. You just shut off the other side entirely. Easy. Go, ah, you know what? I don't like going to church, so I'm just going to say that church is something different. But that's not the way Jesus makes it. And there's legalism which says that going to church and doing all these practices is the thing. And it's not. Again, Jesus operates in this frustrating center where he makes us actually think about the things that we do. Uh Uh-oh. We actually have to process why we value this? Yeah, we do. Because we have to know the fact that going to church doesn't make us any more of a Christian, as I once heard from a youth pastor, and going to McDonald's makes us a hamburger. My favorite quotes of all time. But also, going to, but also objectively saying church doesn't matter and community doesn't matter is also not true. We have to keep coming back to center and train ourselves to come back to that. Let's move on. A few applications as we uh, move on. One, value the people around you more than you value institutions. If we agree to that as a church, as a people, that people are going to be the priority. This means political institutions too, people. What, didn't get any amens for that one. That's interesting. <laughs> you better not talk about my politics, Carson. Don't do it. You have to value people more than that. If your political belief fractures a relationship, you've elevated that way too high. But it's the same with anything else. Okay, if you, if you value the, I'm trying to think of another one, I don't know. If you value like, there we go. If you value hobbies more than people, thank you, whoever that was. Uh, if you value any, just anything else you put above that causes you to have these risks, I'll, I'll, I'll share one, I'll share my own. Okay, are you ready? I'm gonna be very vulnerable with you. But that's okay. I love baseball. My name's Carson. And I'm a baseball addict. Okay? <laughs> my, my wife hates baseball <laughs> because I love it so much. Uh, and I have an MLB app. And I'm not going to lie to you. When the Mets don't win, I have a tough day. There's 162 games in a season. That means roughly 70 of those games are going to be tough days for me. <laughs> And if the game's going bad and I look at Leon and I go, ah, Leon, just be quiet, because I'm mad, I put that on a too high of a pedestal, I think. The Mets will come and go. But my son is way more important than that, obviously. But it's anything you put above it that controls your emotion or compels you to the left or to the right. Or maybe it's what you're worried about. I'm just worried about the way this world is going. Really? You should start loving your neighbor. Because if you're worried about where culture's going, 
it's going there. I, you know, it's just the way our society works. Your person, your neighbor next to you, they're the priority over that institution. Application point number two. Oh, wait, hold on. <laughs> One really long quote really quick. Come back. Okay. The ability to humbly listen to the other side, the other tribe, those who are told are the enemy, a posture seeing the world as both good, as good and bad, black and white, good people, bad people, and refusing to love your enemy. Who does that sound like? <laughs> Someone said Michael. Uh, I think we've got off base here. I should just wrap this thing up. Uh, okay, listen. The, the point of it is this. Who does this sound like? It sounds like both. You're like, oh, it sounds like the left with their progressive politics. Oh, it sounds like the right with their conservative politics. Yeah, it sounds like both of them. On the extremes. Again, most of us land somewhere in the 80% in the middle. But the far ends of it, this is what you do. You shut off the other side, you ignore the other side, you reject the other side, and you just go about it in your own bubble, in your own worldview, until the day you die, not caring who you leave behind in a path of relational destruction. That's what you do. If you're on the extremes, now listen, wherever you land politically is your thing. That's fine. I'm saying on the far ends, far ends of the extreme, this is what happens. And I'm not asking anybody to vote or think a certain way at all. What I am saying is when you do do that process, always think about the fact that people are always going to be more important than that. Okay? Jesus is number one, and people are right there in second. Okay? Next. Here we go. Let's finish this thing up. Two. Disciplines and traditions need to be placed in the right order. I feel like I've talked about that at length. Right? Right order. Two, three. Following Jesus should make us uncomfortable. If you don't feel uncomfortable at times in your walk with Jesus, you should. Jesus is constantly butting up against our human desires. So it's only natural that there's uncomfortability about that. Do I want to get up at 6 a.m. every morning and work out? No, it's uncomfortable to me. But I know at the end of the day, there's something healthy in it. And so it is with Jesus. There's things we have to do following Jesus that force us into a place of discomfort. Or that's sitting down with somebody who disagrees with us and instead of getting into an argument with them, asking questions, tell me more about that. That's interesting. What would you say to somebody who thinks this way? And being less combative and more compassionate. But it also means that to a certain extent, traditions ought to help us embrace this uncomfortability. I'm really being challenged to, to be in the scriptures more during the day. Is that because I want to learn, earn more love from Jesus? No. It's simply because I know that I need God's word to transform me. And I'm trying to find out more about who Jesus is. He doesn't love me anymore if I do or do not do it, but it's uncomfortable at times. When Jesus looks at me and says, hey, I want you to give this money to this person. I don't have a whole lot of money, so it's like, I don't want to do that. But I believe that God is calling me into that discomfort do I have any more points, or is that it? Good? Yes! All right. Uh, the point that I want to make, the last thing I want to say is this. Go back um, to um, Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. 
He says this quote from Isaiah, and he says this, that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So I just want to wrap up with this. One of the big knocks that Jesus has towards the Pharisees, and one of the big knocks the Old Testament prophets have towards Israel, is that they had elevated so many of these other things to the point that they were neglecting the most important thing, which was being loving and being merciful. Jesus is first. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus sets up his new command, which we'll read about later on, he says, listen, you've heard it was said all this stuff of old. What's the greatest commandment? Pick one of the 10. Jesus goes, I'm just gonna rebrand the whole thing. Here's the first thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's number one. We all agree that that's true. The second thing is love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on those laws, hang everything about the Old Testament and the prophets. He doesn't disregard them. He doesn't push them away. He says, let me wrap all that up for you in two sentences. And so it is for us. So I asked you to start this service. What is the mark of a mature believer? Here it is. Are you becoming a person of love? Each day, are you growing in your capacity to love people more? When I talk with someone who's been walking with Jesus for years, we don't have a conversation about politics or agendas or how the kids in my classroom or their classroom are going sideways or I can't believe where this world's going. You say, you know, I just, my heart breaks for people. Their heart just is so soft towards people and wanting to care for them. Is that your heart? When you see somebody on the street corner who says, hey, I'm a veteran, I'm begging for change, I'm just trying to get by, do you go, ah, they're probably scamming me. They're probably just gonna spend it on drugs and alcohol anyways. I'm not gonna give them any money. Such a deadbeat. Or do you instead go, man, that breaks my heart. When When you meet a kid who has a really tough life, an abusive household, do you go, oh, just parents these days, they just don't get it. Or does your heart just break for that kid? I'm really sorry, man. I'm sorry that that's your life. I wish it was different. How can I love you and walk with you through this? Are we gonna stand up with our picket sign and talk about how bad abortion is? And I do believe that it's bad. I do believe it's murder. Are you willing to walk with that person? Are you willing to care for them? Are you willing to partner with them in a different path? Are you more satisfied standing outside the fence and yelling at them, shaming them? I don't think you'd find Jesus doing that. You may disagree with me, but I don't think that's the way you would be. I think you would say, hey, listen, this is not what you have to do. There's an alternative. I will walk with you through it. I will help you. I'll come alongside you like the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and I will walk with you through this. It's up to you. I can't make that decision for you. Jesus can make the decision for you. I need that in my own life. You have any idea how 
Every single day, how I get so frustrated with my students every day. Ugh! By the time fifth period comes around, I'm like, oh my gosh, why did I go to school for this? <laughs> and then I realize, like, they just need love. Like, I, I know it seems floaty and it seems flowery, but that's what they need. They need, me, they need to know that I'm going to be there. I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to love them. And I think for us today, we need, we need to understand that. Get rid of the vitriol. Get rid of the anger. Get rid of the satisfaction of being able to outsmart somebody. And just love the people who God has placed around you. I have one challenge for you this week. One challenge. It's called the dollar challenge. Are you ready? I just made this up just now. Now I thought about it before I got here. It's fine. Okay, take one dollar. One. Give it away. Without any expectation. And no like, Jesus. Don't do that. Just give it away. Or buy something for a coworker. Buy one of your coworkers' coffee. That may cost more than a dollar if you get really nice coffee, but if you get cheap coffee, you can get it for a dollar. All right? And give that to them. Hey, I got this for you. I just want to let you know. Really thankful for you. Care about you. Hope you're having a good day. Oh. Better if you do it with somebody who you really don't disagree with, you really disagree with. That'd be even better. So I know if you buy me coffee, that you disagree with me. Uh, beware if somebody gives you a dollar. Hey! Uh, but I just want, just, just practice that. And then every week, try to give a little bit more away. Not because God's going to love you more, just simply because you want to be a manifestation of God's love in a world that's so divided by anger. Because you want to take tradition and put it in its proper place and just elevate Jesus and love the people. I'll invite the band back up, and I'm going to pray. Jesus, we thank you that you love us. And Lord, we need more of your love. We need more of your truth to reign in our own life. And Jesus, we need to further our capacity to love those around us more. God, we know we're imperfect. We know we're broken. We know we're muddled in tradition. We know we get caught up in all that business so often. It's so easy to get trapped in it, Jesus. But I thank you that at the end of the day, no matter what we do, no matter what we have done, no matter what we will do, God, you call us your own and you love us and you pour out your love upon us. I pray for anybody in here who struggles with just knowing that truth, Jesus, how much they're loved by you. I pray, God, that they would know in their heart, even right now, Jesus, that you love them with the fullest, most passionate sense. And so I pray, God, that as your elevate, as that love is elevated in their life, that it would just naturally come out of them. It wouldn't be this forced attempt to create love. It would just be a natural occurrence of their identity being transformed into your likeness. We thank you, God, for the freedom you provide. You call us to love you, be loved by you, and love those around us, Jesus. May we always value the people in our lives over the traditions of our lives. Be glorified today. Be with us now as we worship you. May your Holy Spirit fill this place. Challenge us to love you deeper. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.